Welcome to episode 55 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. It's my pleasure to welcome Donna Smiley to the podcast. Donna is the Chief Staff Officer for Audiology at the American Speech-Language Hearing Association. She works with the ASHA team in audiology practices, accreditation, certification, and ethics. Prior to coming to ASHA, she was the coordinator for the Educational Audiology Speech-Language Pathology Resources for Schools program, or EARS, at Arkansas Children's Hospital. Dr. Smiley has practiced audiology for 33 years, co-authored a textbook about school-based audiology practice, which was titled School-Based Audiology through Plural Publishing, and was named a Fellow of ASHA in 2018. She received her Ph.D. in hearing science from the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Donna Smiley to the podcast. Well, Donna, welcome to the podcast. Uh, let's start with where you started. How how did you become an audiologist in the beginning? Well, Todd, thank you for the invitation to talk with you today. Um, as you know, our paths go back a long way, but um not as far back as my audiology path does. Mm -hmm. um, so it's an interesting story, in my opinion. I was actually an undergrad student at Henderson State University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. Um, I had chosen to go to Henderson because they had an amazing nursing program, and mm -hmm. I was certain that that was my path. Um, I thought I was going to be a nurse. And um, the first year that I was there, I needed a work-study job. And one of my uh, friends who I had become friends with um, through my sorority, um, she said, well, my mom is a professor here and she needs a, a work-study student. And um, so she introduced me to her mom, who turned out to be Dr. Martha Anderson. And Dr. Mm -hmm. Anderson um, was basically the sole professor in the uh, undergrad communication sciences and disorders program. Dr. Anderson had actually, um, she had a PhD in speech language uh, pathology, but she had just recently gone back to school um, and did her coursework and practicum so that she could earn her C's in audiology. So uh -huh. part of my work study job for her was to uh, literally type on a typewriter uh, a couple of research projects that she was working on um, that were very uh, centered around some audio audiology types of topics. So um, that uh, when I went to meet with her to interview for the job, she was interested in the fact that I was a nursing major. So I had a, a lot of science um, and math um, right. in my coursework. And so the first time we met, she said, I'm going to get you to change your major. And I said, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> but by the, by the second semester of my sophomore year, she had accomplished that. And um, I'm I'm very happy that she did. Uh, audiology sure. has been a wonderful career. Um, she was a wonderful mentor. She was hard on me, uh, as she was a lot of her students. Um, but uh, she was a great role model. And um, I'm glad that she was able to get me to change my major. Oh, that's awesome. Um, 
my my daughter is a nurse, uh, but she that was something she decided to do when she was about uh, ten years old, and she never looked back. Although she did leave uh, being a nurse in a hospital to become a school nurse, and loves oh, it. awesome, yeah, absolutely loves it. So, um, so with audiology, and so from there you went to University of Arkansas. At, uh, well, I went to the University of Arkansas for medical sciences. So it is a mm-hmm. U of A campus, right. but it's in Little Rock. And right. I earned my master's degree. So I'm mm-hmm. back from the days of a master's degree. Uh, my first job out of school was at Arkansas Children's Hospital in Little Rock. And I I did pediatric audiology and then had an opportunity to do some uh, educational type audiology consulting. It wasn't mm-hmm. exactly what you and I would call educational audiology, but it was a consulting right. job at the state level. Um, my path kind of meandered a little bit uh, in the sense that what I really did want to do was get to do school-based audiology. Um, mm-hmm. But we didn't really have that in the state of Arkansas. And um, so I did several different things. I taught in a speech path only program, went back to school and got a PhD in hearing science, came back to Arkansas, um, taught some more. And then one day, um, a friend of ours who you know Mm -hmm. very well, Dr. Patty Martin, um, who at the time was the director of audiology and speech pathology at Arkansas Children's, she called me um, and said, you know, we're thinking about doing some some contracting with schools. We're going to give it a try. I know you've always wanted us to do this, Donna. So, you know, could you help us? Could you consult with us a little bit? So I started doing that while I was still teaching full time. And what happened was that we were able to make that a a full program. And today, even though I left that program two and a half years ago, or almost three years ago to come to ASHA, Um, That program has about seven or eight audiologists, a couple of speech language pathologists, and they contract with schools all around the state of Arkansas. Um, Not quite all of the schools, but enough uh, in terms of the staffing that they have. And they provide that school-based contract audiology and work with a lot of school nurses, Todd. So if (laughs) your daughter was a school nurse in Arkansas, she would um, definitely know about the EARS team, which is the name of the program. Well, that's awesome. And so are they so doing the educational audiology? So what are the SLPs doing to support that in that situation? So the there are two SLPs that uh work with that program and they each have a a little bit of a different specialty. One of them is um fluent in sign language and she's able to go out to the schools and help um the the speech pathologist who mm-hmm. have students that sign as their primary mode of communication. And that's helpful because, as you know, when we're trying to evaluate a student's language, it is helpful not to have to use an interpreter and to be able to actually have somebody who is qualified to administer a language assessment in sign. So one of them is able to do that. That's that's one of her many skills. Mm -hmm. And then both of them support speech-language pathologists Um, and teachers in working with students who are deaf and hard of hearing. So they might participate in IEP conferences. Um, They might go out and do assessments. They certainly can do auditory skill assessment and help um, schools understand how to uh, develop those auditory skills that are very important, obviously, for speech language and academic development. Right. 
such a great model. I, I wish more states had something like that going. Um, but you know, as we know, unfortunately, it doesn't happen very often uh, quite that way. So um, we, we struggle here in Ohio. And we, we have probably, I would say, one of the best uh, locally, and that's Carrie Spangler, who's just yes. wonderful. And then we have a couple others, are, you know, locally that help out, too, that are educational audiologists. But, uh, but yeah, it's just not consistent. It's, it's one, one district may have those services, but the next district right, right over won't have it. You know, Absolutely. And it is a challenge um, still across the United States. Um, there are some states like Ohio that have a little bit here and there. And then there are other states like Colorado who tend to have it, you know, everywhere. You know, it's available mm-hmm. to everyone. Right. Um, I've often questioned how how a state special education unit can look at IDEA that has this full definition of what educational audiology or audiology services in the schools should look like, but yet the state not um, help schools understand that they have to provide those services. Um, So it's still a passion of mine to continue to help um, audiologists, speech language pathologists, who can often be our champions. to understand that that is critical and that those services often provide support to students and to staff, that those services are critical in um, achieving the best outcomes for students. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it's it's the same kind of thing we we end up trying to advocate for every year. It seems like it never changes. But if we invest in these kids early on and give them the support they need educationally, it's going to save money down the road. And Absolutely. why not? And, and then if you look at the at the federal law, we, we need to be providing these services and they, and they need to be comprehensive services and yes. not, you know, kind of piecemeal. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, why do we have to keep fighting these some of these fights <laughs> year after year after year? Exactly. Well, and I would also add, Todd, that and I know you're familiar with this, that, you know, I mentioned special education because often that's our our foot in the door, but really better listening environments for all students is really the ultimate goal. So really mm-hmm. audiology services in schools, and I would all offer that speech pathology has some of the same um, arguments. Um, we really aren't just about special education. We mm-hmm. really are about the education of all students. And I think that in terms of even looking to the future, um, when I look back on my career, you know, in 10 years, I hope that I can look back and and be able to see that we did make some progress in that area, that we've been able right. to convince uh, administrators, teachers, um, anybody, parents, that our services really can have a, an, a benefit and an impact on all students because we can create better listening environments. We can help students um, have better access to the auditory information that's provided to them every day. Right. And and I, I agree with you 100%. And I think we have seen a lot of districts uh, putting, you know, sound field systems or, or assistive listening devices in classrooms for all children. Yes. Um, and so that's been a big step in the right direction. Um, and that new schools are being designed and built with with that auditory access, uh, so to speak. I was, although I was, I was, you know, getting um, 
really excited about some of these stats. And then someone said, you know, the average new school is built once every 25 years or something in the United States. I mean, it's, just, it's a very long period of time. So we still have lots of schools out there still being used, lots of buildings that need to be, you know, have these accommodations uh, in place. Yeah, absolutely. So I couldn't, I couldn't agree advocating. more. <laughs> yep. Yes. So um, love everything about, you know, the children's hospital there uh, in Little Rock and, and what you guys have done over the years. And of course, I think it's, it's probably I'll, I'll just say, it. I think it's probably the best children's hospital if you have a child with hearing loss, especially, um, but for other things too, of course. But I think it's, it's definitely one of the best children's hospitals in the country. And and um, and it, it goes to what you and Patty and, uh, and others have done. Uh, I had Tracy on a couple of weeks, a few weeks ago. Uh, awesome. So all the things that you guys have done over the years and, and built to build those programs into that reputation is just phenomenal. Well, I'm glad to have had that as a part of my personal history. Uh, I grew up in Little Rock and um, there's actually, if you, and I think you've been there, but mm -hmm. if you were to drive by Arkansas Children's Hospital, there's an interstate. Well, that interstate didn't exist when I was growing up and my mm -hmm. family lived on the east side of Little Rock. So if we went to the west side, we drove down a street that did go beside the hospital. And I remember telling my parents that one day I, I wanted to work there. The, the difference is I thought I was going to be a physician or a nurse. Um, right. Little did I know that I would be an audiologist because, of course, at that time, I didn't even know what they what an audiologist was. Um, but it's been a, a it, it's been an honor to have that as a part of my history and uh, certainly consider Dr. Patty Martin to be one of my longtime mentors uh, right there along with Dr. Martha Anderson, who passed away actually when I was just getting out of graduate school. So she's been yeah. gone a long time, but she had a huge influence on my life. That's awesome. Um, and so you have left this great program and now you are at ASHA. And just for those who are not speech pathologists listening to this, the American Speech Language Hearing Association, um, how has that transition been for you? Well, um, it's also been an honor to work at ASHA. Um, it's interesting because I like to pretend that I'm still new there, but I literally am coming up on the end of my third year there. Um, so it's kind of a big joke. How long can you claim to be the new right. person? Uh, so it, it's been quite a transition. Um, I had uh, uh, the opportunity back about 10 years ago uh, to serve on the board of directors for ASHA. Um, I was the mm -hmm. vice president for um, audiology practices, and um, that really helped me to see as a volunteer just really how um, well run ASHA is in terms of the staff side of things, in terms of mm -hmm. the leadership side of things. Um, and so it just became something that was interesting to me, but not until I guess the fall of 2020 did I have the opportunity to apply for this position, which is the chief staff officer for audiology. 
uh, and I'll tell you in just a second some of the other things that I do, but um, I had that opportunity. Um, unfortunately, the person who preceded me, Dr. Neil DeSarno, um, passed away in um, the spring of 2020, mm-hmm. and that left that position open. Um, to my knowledge, uh, Neil, and then before him, Dr. Vic Gladstone, I believe they may have been the only other people that held that specific position. Uh, I don't know if there was anybody there before Vic that had that specific position, but um, it's been um, it's been a great uh, amount of work. Uh, it's been a great learning experience. I've learned a lot about associations, and that's very different um, than working in a clinical setting, but it's been interesting to be able to see this side of it. I certainly think that one thing I can say without a doubt is that if you are a member of ASHA or you benefit from any of of services that individuals who are members of ASHA, um, you have a very hardworking staff um, behind the scenes. We are, I believe we're up to somewhere of around 310 or 315 staff. Uh, at the end of 2022, ASHA had 228,000 members, and that included our student members, which is about 10,000. Um, and then it also includes a, a little less than 500 assistants who are certified. Um mm-hmm by ASHA. And then uh, the rest are speech language pathologists and about 14,700 and some odd uh, audiologists who are certified by ASHA. So um, lots of members. We're still growing. We anticipate the end of the year numbers for 2023 to add somewhere between five and 7,000 um, folks to that role. So um, wow. it's a growing, it's a growing profession. Both professions are growing. Um, mm-hmm. We certainly have some attrition because people do retire or change their, uh, their path in life, but it it is still a very much of a growing both professions. Right. And I read not too long ago that, uh, that audiology as a profession has now flipped to being majority female now. That I believe is accurate. (laughs) (laughs) It is. We, we have more, uh, percentage wise, we have more males than speech pathology does in terms of when you look at the overall membership, but yes, it has flipped over to be at least 50% female. And I haven't looked at the numbers lately, but I think it's a little more than 51%. A little bit more now. You know, I remember when I was uh, thinking of going to grad school, the, 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 you know, the unwritten rule was males went into audiology, females went into speech. And I I wanted to work with kids with hearing loss, but I was, you know, torn between what I wanted to do. And I ended up deciding to go into speech. But um, what was funny, it was there was uh, in that uh, graduate program at University of South Carolina when I started, there were four males going into audiology and one female. So they had a class of five. Yeah, five grad students, all four males flunked out, <laughs> didn't make it through. <laughs> it was only the female who made it through and became an audiologist. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was uh, interesting back in those days, and it's, just, it's been interesting to see that transition over time. Yeah, uh, it it still continues. Uh, you know, we'll see more males in the graduate programs for audiology in terms of, again, proportionally. Um, But we're still continuing to do our best to recruit um, people from all types of backgrounds, all uh, diversity levels to 
um, to be a part of our profession. You know, one of the things that we want, or at least I want, and I think I can speak for other uh, staff at, at ASHA, that, you know, we want patients to be able to look and see providers that look like mm-hmm. them, um, that share their, you know, as much as possible their experiences, because um, we we want that for that patient population. So that right. is our goal, and probably uh, we'll continue every day to, to work towards that goal. Oh, I, I agree 100%. And I, I uh, certainly, something we embrace at the university, University of Akron, uh, and our our two programs, uh, three programs, actually. Um, we we firmly believe that, and I firmly believe that on a personal level, that I think we have to train our, our individuals, our students, and recruit for students so that, yes, so the patients they, they end up working with do see people that look like them. And yes. I think it hasn't been always at the forefront of our thoughts, and I think it, we have to be able to, to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's hard sometimes to be the first student that looks like you do, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. that's also a part, I think, of your recruitment and of the interest that ASHA has that we want to continue to support and champion students who want to be right. in our profession, but who may not, who may look around and not necessarily see others that look like them in the profession. So we still have a lot of work to do, but but I think, Todd, you make a good point, and that is that, you know, we each can do our part. Right. And I think that's what's important. And it's definitely something we're working on at the university. Um, so what? let's talk about, you mentioned 2023. So this year, as we're recording this, finishing up uh, this year in December, what were some of your highlights from this year in audiology or just from ASHA in general? What do we would like to talk about? Sure. Well, um, I do want to mention that um, that. 2023, um, it seems like it went by really fast, <laughs> but really I do did. think we've, it did go by very fast. I think, um, I don't know how you feel, but it seems like every year goes faster than the one before. Yeah. Um, but I would highlight a couple of things that have happened both. They they are relevant to ASHA, but they're really as much relevant to the field of audiology and the practice of audiology. And I would say the first thing that we um tried to meet head on was uh, in late 2022, the introduction of over-the-counter hearing aids into the marketplace. Um, That happened in October of 2022. And while there were some things that we could do to prepare for that, because we wanted to be able to prepare our members for it, until those things actually hit the shelves, it was a little bit difficult to know exactly what that would look like. So in 2023, um, at least at ASHA, and I know at some other organizations that uh, represent audiologists, um, there's been a lot of work around creating resources for um, members, for audiologists who are out there seeing patients, um, and for the academicians that are teaching future audiologists for us to develop resources that they can use um, in order to um, deal with uh, the, mm-hmm. the idea of over-the-counter Uh, hearing aids. So at ASHA, we, uh, our audiology practices unit, and I say we, and I had not Mm -hmm. one thing to do with it. I have this amazing group of people that I get to work with. And um, so our audiology practices unit, which is um, five audiologists and a program manager, that Mm -hmm. group um, developed the 
the resources to go in an OTC, over-the-counter hearing aid toolkit. Mm -hmm. And then uh, within ASHA, we have um, uh, creative media folks and we have all kinds of, you know, web folks that help us get that stuff out. So it was really a team effort across the office uh, and across the staff. So that OTC toolkit is available for... um, members to use. It has Mm -hmm. some great handouts that you can use with patients and clients. Uh, It has some great resources for um, helping you as an audiologist to connect to other professionals, such as pharmacists. Uh, One of the things that we knew early on is that because these devices would be available often in a pharmacy area, that it made great sense for us to partner with pharmacists. Mm-hmm. So we have um, those resources. So there's been a lot of effort around that. That actually was ready probably in the first quarter of 2023. And then mm-hmm. just the refinement of it and adding to it. It's a very dynamic toolkit um, right. that's available online. So that's been a big piece. And then trying mm-hmm. to provide um, technical assistance as well as educational opportunities for audiologists and speech language pathologists to understand how OTCs, uh, what what they look like, what uh, how they can be used, how they shouldn't be used. Um, and so that was a huge effort in 2023. Um, I would say the other huge effort that's been an ongoing one uh, would involve our governmental affairs and public policy staff, and as well as our audiology practices staff, and that is around the reintroduce uh, or the reintroduction of the Medicare audiology Access and Improvement Act. And um, so, as you may know, Todd, um, the new uh, session of Congress, which is a 2023-2024 session, obviously started in 2023. And while that bill um, had a different title and uh, maybe a little bit some smaller nuances in the former congressional session, it needed to be reintroduced. So um, that happened in 2023. Um, the day that we're that we're talking, uh, Todd, uh, in December, it has not. It has been introduced in the Senate and the House, but it has not been passed. All right. If I were a, a betting woman, I would say that it probably. It. I don't know that it that it can happen before the end of the year, but we are really really hopeful that within this congressional session that mm-hmm. we will be able to get this across the line. And for your listeners who may not be as familiar, um, that uh, bill contains three things. One, it would um, it would change audiologists from um, suppliers in the Medicare statute to uh, practitioners, which is Good. really important. Actually, mm-hmm. speech pathologists are practitioners in their part of the of the Medicare statute. So that's one thing. Um, A second thing would be that it would provide for um, us to be, for audiologists to be reimbursed for our full scope of practice. It's been in our scope of practice forever that we can provide um, audiologic rehabilitation or habilitation, depending on the age of the person. Um, But from a Medicare perspective, which there's a trickle down effect to other Mm. uh, payers, we have never been recognized in the Medicare statute as being um, reimbursable because that's a therapy service uh, versus a diagnostic service. So that would be a a good change, uh, we believe. And then the last part of the three-pronged approach is that um, patients 
who have Medicare would ha- be able to go directly to an audiologist for mm-hmm. a hearing assessment, as opposed to having to have a, a referral. Um, and there are other services within Medicare that individuals don't have to have a referral for. And right. um, I think that my understanding is that the average um, person would uh this would just be easier for them. It would provide better access to care. Um, it would it would actually, in some ways, provide some cost savings. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I won't pretend to know all the ins and outs of that piece of it, but right. from a practical standpoint, if I don't have to go through the gatekeeper, um, you know, and audiologists are very clear on what our scope of practice is. It's not right. as if I'm going to diagnose somebody with an acoustic tumor. Um, right. I'm going to get them to the right person. So um, so we're excited about that. I know that if your listeners who've been audiologists for a while may know that we've been at this for a bit. But what's very exciting is that um, a couple of other organizations that also have audiologists as members, uh, the American Academy of Audiology and the Academy of Doctors of Audiology, Mm -hmm. uh, the three groups, uh, we have worked very closely together to uh, sort of have a united uh, bill that we want to support, and we have for several years. Um, We're Mm -hmm. working well together to try to get this over the finish line. And um, back a month or so ago, uh, Senator Warren, Elizabeth Mm -hmm. Warren from Massachusetts, who's a big advocate of this uh, and is one of our main sponsors in the Senate, she actually brought this up in relation to another bill and was able to get verbal um, agreement from the chair of the committee that she was in front of um, that that we that he would work to support this and move it forward. Um, So we'll see. There are yeah. some opportunities here at the very end of the year, potentially, but if it doesn't, um, the work will continue into 2024. We are very excited about that. But you have to get it introduced. So we're over the first hurdle. And right. um, so that was a great accomplishment for 2023. And for 2024, if we don't make it by a few days from now, we hope to make it over the line, the finish line in 2024. Wonderful. So those are the the two big things, Todd. I mean, mm-hmm. there are certainly small things. Um that we continue to develop resources, we continue to develop uh, technical assistance. Um, one other thing I'll mention, and again, mm-hmm. this just shows you the um, multifaceted teams that work on things at ASHA. Uh, over in our National Center for Evidence-Based Practice, um, in conjunction with audiology practices, they have put uh, together four um single page or or maybe two page uh, value statements about different um, services that audiologists provide. Mm-hmm. And um, those are available for audiologists to use. They might be useful if you're approaching administrators, if you're approaching patients, if you're approaching payers. Um, so I encourage people to look for those. There are also a couple of those related to speech language pathology, um, mm-hmm. but they are a way for um us to boil down sort of the evidence and make it very practical um, about the value of the audiologist's role in, um, you know, something like tinnitus or in vestibular care. Uh, So do look for those. uh, I hope your listeners will look for those if they think that those could be useful. Wonderful. Well, you guys have been busy this year for sure and uh, will continue to be very busy. Any other big initiatives that you see coming down the pike in the future? Well, 
One thing that I'm very interested in, and I'm certainly not alone, our board, um, our board of directors, uh, the audiologists who sit on the board, as well as the speech language pathologist, uh, but especially the audiologists, we have a subcommittee and that group uh, talks at least once a month. And so our board is really interested and has been in 2023 to really look at how can we make, um, how can we highlight hearing? and hearing health care, and the potential effects of hearing loss, how can we highlight in that to primary care physicians? How can we help them understand the importance of referring patients for at least a hearing screening um, so that uh, we can identify hearing loss in adults early, and we can intervene right. early, um, and we can uh, try to help uh save quality of life, um, you know, maybe stave off some other uh, issues that could develop um, due to hearing loss, uh, social isolation, loneliness, uh, you know, right. any potential cognitive effects that might come from having hearing loss. So there's been a lot of talk this year, and we hope to move this forward along with other audiology organizations if they're interested, really trying to figure out how can we get adults identified early if they have hearing loss. Um, you and I uh, will remember the days of uh, this type of initiative for um, pediatric patients. It was a big right. part of the beginning of my career and yours. And mm -hmm. um, we worked very hard and very long to make that happen. And while we still have work over in that arena, um, it would be nice to apply some of those learnings to the adult um, aged patient. So I, at least on my radar, that's certainly something that's important to me for 2024, that we try to figure out what are some actions that we can take to sort of move that needle um, to get adults identified earlier, uh, intervened with appropriately. And that's another piece of this puzzle. And that is that if a, if an adult needs um, you know, if they can benefit from an OTC, uh, over-the-counter hearing aid, and they have one, great. Um, but if they're at a point in their their journey with hearing that they really need to be considered for a cochlear implant, we want to make sure that that happens also. So really across that continuum of amplification options, um, you know, how can we just get them to that point? Because that's a big issue is just getting them to the evaluation piece and then right. getting them to the intervention piece. I think the other thing that I'm, uh, we won't drive, but um, technology is just, uh, you know, exploding. Sure. Um, I just had a little preview of a, a product that will hopefully hit the market next year. Um, I had this preview last week. Um, it's fascinating to see. And you know, what products might come out in the OTC space, what products mm -hmm. may come out in the cochlear implant space, and then mm -hmm. everywhere in between with hearing aids and, and bone anchored or bone um, uh, is, you know, bone conduction devices, that kind of thing. Right. So technology is going to always um, continue to push us forward, which is not a bad thing. And then I would say the other thing that's going to push us forward, and I can't even begin to predict how this will affect our profession, and that is artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And um, what I think my goal, at least from the ASHA perspective, is just to try to stay on top of that. And then if right. we can at all possible get out ahead of it so that we can prepare our members.
first so that right. they can then pass on the um, good parts of that and the learnings that we have from it to their patients. So just a couple of mm-hmm. things in 2024, not much. <laughs> just some minor <laughs> things going on. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly about the uh, artificial intelligence. And one of the things that I've, I've said in my presentations when I talk about it is I think it's going to be that, you know, AI is, it won't replace us uh, as practitioners, but uh, audiologists and speech language pathologists who know how to use technology like artificial intelligence will replace those who can't or won't. Yeah. And so uh, that's something even as a faculty member, try to talk to my colleagues on, on faculty that we need to train our grad students for this world that they're going to be working in. And yeah. uh, unfortunately, I don't think many um, training programs have really embraced a lot of these new technologies and and really tried to incorporate them. It was a big step for many of them to do tel- telepractice and they kind of had <laughs> to uh, during COVID. And now that, and we're we're kind of out of COVID, so to speak. You know, a lot of programs have gone back, you know, to old old ways of doing things. And so I think we have to understand the technology and I, and I agree a hundred percent. We have to try to stay on top of it and hopefully get ahead of it in some ways, um, so that we can continue to deliver the services that our patients are going to expect. Exactly. And Todd, I um I, I'm sure that we're all grateful that when COVID hit, that you didn't that you didn't look at all of us and say, "I told you this telepractice <laughs> thing is coming," because I know that you've done work in that area for a very long time, um, and I think that we were forced to think about it differently. And I hope where we are for the rest of us that you had to drag along a little bit. I hope that where we came to at the end, not the end of the pandemic, but on this side of the pandemic that we came to the understanding that really telepractice offers us an opportunity for better access. And I know that you've known that for a long time, and I hope I knew it maybe more than the average person, (laughs) but um, I think I've become more acutely aware in just the different conversations that I've uh, been able to be a part of, of how Mm -hmm. important it is to think about access. You know, I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, and while I did not grow up in a wealthy family, I did grow up in a place where we could get to services when we needed them. And then as I did my work in Arkansas, especially in the schools, I began to understand how, you know, a even a family that lived 45 minutes from Little Rock, one, they're, they're, the family didn't want to drive in the big city, right. which for right. most of your listeners, Little Rock, I mean, it's a city, but they wouldn't consider it to be big. Um, <laughs> right. they, they just didn't want to. They didn't even want to come to some of the smaller cities. So right. um, that's not something that's been a part of my experience, but I do want us to be aware of that because when we start to think about getting a hearing test, getting amplification, you know, what are the things that artificial intelligence, that telepractice, that um, all of these technologies, what are, what are the opportunities that are going to be afforded to us to be able to give access to services to people that maybe haven't had that opportunity? Um, and then mm-hmm. we're going to have to think about the access to the technology, the hearing technology. You know, how right. do we deal with that? and I don't want to uh, join in the the choruses of the whole affordability piece, although it is certainly a big deal. But mm-hmm. I think we have to look for ways that we can make 
um, not just our services available, but how do we make the technology available um, so that more people do have access to it, however that happens. Right, right. I agree on all fronts. Um, I think I think <clears throat> technology can make our lives as a tool can make our lives a lot easier and provide access, uh, like you're saying. And uh, as something I, I try to talk to my grad students about is is that it's a tool to use yeah. and to use so that you can build the most appropriate treat, you know, diagnostic and treatment program mm-hmm. for the patients you're serving. And that patient may live two hours away or they may patient may live right down the street. And because they have medically fragile children or they are med- medically fragile, telepractice or some other way of serving them may be the best way that they can get access. Um, and so it all comes back to that is, is thinking about these tools and how can we use these tools uh, to the to the best of our abilities so that we can do our very best job for the patients we're working with. And I think access for the adults is is something that now has been percolating out there a lot about adult hearing screening and, and how can we get more adults to be screened earlier and then get them, you know, tested, you know, full uh, ideological evaluation to to either confirm or rule out hearing loss. Um, and so I, I think that's another big step in the right direction. I know that I was talking to a colleague uh, not long ago, and she was talking about some of her uh, efforts of even like in, and I get this feedback from my own grad students sometimes. They'll come to me, they've been placed maybe at a skilled nursing facility, and uh, they're having to do these, you know, speech and language evaluations on these uh, patients. And none of them have hearing aids. None of them have a pocket talker. None of them have anything. But they obviously have hearing loss. And so, you know, and there's no no audiometer to screen available. You know, they send the hearing aids home because they don't want them to be lost or stolen. And it's like, but then you have to go in there and test them and you're going to, they're not going to do well. Well, is it because of some cognitive impairment as a result of a stroke? Or is it they didn't hear half the stuff you were saying? <laughs> So there's a lot here in the whole uh, adult side of things of having that continuum of care from from screening to diagnosis, you know, you, uh, access to the hearing technology. And then when they do have these additional medical challenges, that they still have access to technology that, and that will give them the best possible way, you know, to communicate Um so it's it you know it's always been a bit of, of a frustration for me to see, and, and I've seen it in my own family, my own mother who, who went through the same thing. They took her hearing aids out. They wanted to send them home. I said, "But she's not going to be able to hear anything." It's like it didn't even register. We just send these home. That was just sort of policy. We just send them yeah. home. We don't want them to be lost. We don't want to take responsibility for them. Um, so it's frustrating. It is. And I think it highlights the opportunity that we continue to have to further educate the public, um, these uh, especially healthcare and educational settings for, you know, kids all the way up to um, our geriatric patients. Um, And I think that I know there are a lot of professionals uh, in our fields that are frustrated because they want people to know who we are and what we do. I really think that 
that we all have a responsibility to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of took it on as a personal challenge in Arkansas. You know, oftentimes people in uh, schools didn't really know what the services were that a school-based or educational audiologist could provide. And so I think each of us has to take that opportunity to educate people. You encounter somebody, um, this has happened to me probably three or four times in the last 12 months where somebody in, in I'm somewhere and somebody says, well, what do you do? And well, I'm an audiologist. Well, do you know sign language? That has yeah. been the answer to about four requests. And and I explained to them that that is a part of the population and uh, folks that I work with, but that I also work with a lot of people that have hearing challenges, but that who don't use sign language. And so right. um, I help them uh, figure out how to communicate with uh, different technology or different uh, resources. So I think each of us has that opportunity when we encounter people that don't know what we do to continue to educate. But I think in our skilled nursing facilities, in our hospitals, in our schools, we have um, definitely still have a lot of education to do. Um, There's just so much uh, information out there now. I get it. It's hard to absorb it all for a person who's not familiar with our professions, but I hope that we'll each take that opportunity to just, you know, plant a little seed of, of maybe something different that we do than what that person thinks we do. I agree 100%. Well, Don, I think I've I've taken enough of your time. I know you're busy. Um, how can uh, listeners, if they need to reach out, can they just call ASHA or, or reach you through the website? Absolutely. And I would welcome um, feedback. You can uh, reach us. If you have probably the best way to reach anybody at ASHA is to go through our app. Center, and um, there is a number, and you're going to laugh because I don't know it off the top of my head, but I can quickly find it. So we have an action center that's a a, a group of amazing people um, that answer questions, and then they also just sort of help uh, members and or the public connect with other people within the office. So um, everybody can reach the action center at one eight hundred six three eight. 8255, or they can email the Action Center. Um, and actually, you just go to our website. And, and if you scroll all the way down to the bottom, go to www.asha.org, A-S-H-A. Scroll to the bottom on the right-hand side, and there's a little form that they can email us. If they want to email me, that's really probably one of the fastest ways to do that. It will get um, routed to me immediately. Um, if people have technical assistance questions, they are more than um, welcome to reach out to us. If you're an ASHA member, you probably are more familiar with the website and can find some of the different pages that you want and um, the different connections that you want, but we would welcome that. We're happy to help. We're happy to help anybody that we can. And we try to, um, like I said, distribute those types of emails to the most appropriate person to answer the question. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing all the things that you guys accomplished and are working on this year and what you're hoping to do in the following year and next year. Um, and I hope we don't, we have to do this more often, uh, but definitely it's been fun kind of catching up, but also kind of uh, seeing, you know, this year we were able to do these things. Next year, this is what we're working on. So maybe we'll have to make this an annual event at, at a minimum. 
And uh, but hopefully, uh, whenever you want to come back and and discuss anything you guys are working on, you you have a, a, an open door. So anytime you want to come back, you're more than welcome. Well, I appreciate that, Todd, very much, and thank you for this opportunity. I do hope that um, um, that I gave you something that was different or new, and I certainly will touch base with you, especially if we get the Medicare Audiology Access Improvement Act over the finish line. Um, I will try to make you be one of the first people that I reach out to so um, we awesome. can come back and talk about that. But thank you. And I hope that you and your family and your listeners will have a wonderful holiday season and a happy beginning to the new year. Wonderful. Thank you again, Donna. I want to thank Donna for joining us on the podcast and thank her again for giving us an update on all the things she's been doing in 2023 at ASHA and, of course, everything that's on the horizon in 2024. And this, as we release this episode, is the first week of 2024. So I wish you all a wonderful new year, and I hope it's full of joy and wealth and health and happiness. Uh, That is what we want for all of us, right? And with that, if you don't mind, leave us that five-star review. That helps us attract those new listeners and new subscribers. And that's always very, very appreciated. Until next time, this has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network. (music) 